Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. And the idea for this week's show came from another episode, actually. It was one in which Vic Norman and I were exploring a particular part of the centre of town that had suffered damage from aerial bombardment in the Second World War. And actually, there was some debate going on about whether it was bomb fragments or machine gun fire that had caused the damage in one of the central churches. A lively debate ensued. Many thanks to uh, several people, including Moscow London, for contributing on Twitter. And to Larry Porges, who got us onto the scent of my guest for this week, an expert in, well, London getting bombed, to put it bluntly. And thanks to this week's guest, I have finally got some understanding of what it meant for London to be bombed in the Second World War. As you're going to hear, he explained to me that 40,000 tonnes of explosives were dropped on London in the Second World War. He told me that the average car is about a tonne. And now I've got some building blocks to work with. So imagine the consternation that would arise if we were to learn that today a car is going to be dropped at random on London. That would be reasonably worrying, I think. But imagine if over the course of just a, a few short years, you knew that 40,000 cars were going to be dropped on London. Again, completely at random. And these cars all come with special features as well. Some of them explode on impact. Others set everything around them on fire. It's a really crude back-of-the-envelope illustration, but it just begins to give one a bit of an idea of the level of the assault suffered by this city. We're going to dive right in after I remind you that we have teamed up with audible.co.uk to offer you a free audiobook of your choice if you register for a one-month free trial of the Audible service. There's over 150,000 to choose from, and you can get your free audiobook, which is yours to keep, whether you hang on in there after the trial period or not. I have. I think it's a fantastic service. Give it a go. Good news as well, if you've already done that, if you've trialled the service more than 12 months ago, Audible is giving you the chance to get your hands on another audiobook for free all you've got to do is sign up for that 30 day free trial at www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist Hey baby let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound you ain't never seen the light before just a stone through from your front door from just outside the Tate Britain in Pimlico, where we are so far undamaged, unlike the wall right ahead of us. And it is that wall that is going to start a conversation about London being damaged from the air, mostly. With me on the ground is Robert Fleming. He is the manager of the Templar Centre. He's the studies manager there and uh, heavily connected with the National Army Museum, therefore. Hi. Hi there. Actually, the National Army Museum, you've been undergoing transformation there. Yes, indeed. The, um, the National Army Museum is in the middle of a really interesting renovation project. The museum itself uh, started in 1960, moved into Chelsea from its old home at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst and make it more publicly accessible right in the heart of London in Chelsea. But the building had been quite out of date and hadn't really had much done to it. Um, so we put in a bid to the Heritage Lottery Fund to have a, a major renovation literally from the ground up. And we received a grant. Um, the process kicked off a couple of years ago and we're hopefully going to be reopening early in the new year but brand new offer new approaches to storytelling uh, much more of an emphasis on asking um, audiences philosophical questions about why we have an army what the army's for what's the relationship between the army and society and these sorts of things i'm really delighted because we actually we recorded an episode but that question in some of the exhibits really wasn't being asked you know there was a there was a, a worrying feeling that we were glorifying 
Warcraft. But I'm glad to hear that some of those questions are being addressed. Absolutely. Well, I would, I would never, I would never buy the argument that we were ever sort of about glorification. But we did very much have our storytelling process seated in the old tradition of military history. It was a very chronological approach and narrative approach, all about campaigns and major battles and commanders and those sorts of things. And that misses so many of the important questions about military force, legitimised force, what the army does. And of course the army does a lot more than just war fighting. Yeah, but moving things around, grunt work, I reckon must be a much bigger proportion of the army's time actually than battles and Abs- conquests absolutely grunt work logistics it's all about logistics but also you know keeping people fed um, getting supplies to the right places making sure that they're trained and in a position to help with civil emergencies disaster relief and that sort of thing um, and and of course uh, keeping the nation safe which is a primary duty well i guess that ties in in a, a loose sort of way to what we're going to be talking about today i'm going to try and get us into the national army museum for that reopening we are in the vicinity of the tape britain today to talk about what well one of the interesting subjects that i do a little bit of research or have done uh, research on in the past it's always something as a londoner that i've held a fascination with i guess like so many londoners i'm not originally from here i'm from australia i moved here over a decade ago and as a military historian with a little bit of background particularly about um, how london had experienced the second world war i wanted to dig a bit deeper and find out more about that impact and what i was really surprised to discover is that a lot more of the legacy of the second world war still survives around us you know you sort of assume that the city um, was bombed and then rebuilt and that the second world war belongs in the past but actually it still affects our daily lives it's still visible all around us i was very very excited to see some pictures that accompanied a talk that you've done on youtube i suddenly realized that i've been looking at this sort of damage the whole time without realizing it and quite often there are clues not only to the fact that there's been bombing in the brickwork of all sorts of buildings but also a sort of a map of exactly what happened and how the building is constructed. It's really interesting stuff. But before we get to all that, I guess thinking about London being bombed from the air, maybe if we took that as our broad strokes approach, have we any idea when that would first have happened? Well, it's interesting because, of course, I guess most people have a vague notion of the Blitz in the Second World War, but actually that wasn't the first time that London was bombed from the air. Um, The Germans uh, launched their first strategic bombing campaign, what we call an effort to deliberately and and plan and coordinated attack against a city, a strategic bombing campaign. They launched a campaign against London in the First World War as well, and that was initially done in 1915. At the beginning of the war in 1914, Kaiser Wilhelm actually actually banned his air force from bombing London because he was genuinely worried about killing his own cousin, the king. They were, of course, first cousins. And so he put a ban on the bombing. But when they realised the war wasn't going to be over by Christmas and was going to be a proper, long, strategic sort of campaign, he relented and allowed London to be bombed. But very deliberately only military targets in fact he said nowhere west of the city just to keep Buckingham Palace out of the target zone but Was he a little overconfident of the prowess of uh, his, his bombers there? Well it was a far from protected art form and actually the initial campaign was done by Zeppelin and Zeppelins are hard enough to steer and keep in the right spot anyway let alone uh, you know, targeted bombing from them um, they were fa- it was far from a precise science their, their primary targets, though, were actually the coastline, Yarmouth, um, uh, South End, places like that. They were trying to hit those important ports on the on the coast. Um, but London, probably more than any real strategic effect, trying to affect the morale of Londoners and of the capital and of the, the nation as a whole. How did they do in the First World War? Well, really, it's a bit of a mixed bag. The, the Londoners were absolutely shocked. In the imperial capital, the centre of the world's largest empire, they'd certainly never been directly attacked in that way before. Um, so, yes, it, it did worry Londoners. But the bombing didn't have the effect that uh, Germany had hoped for. And the Zeppelins increasingly were becoming vulnerable to anti-aircraft fire. The anti-aircraft batteries learned to use incendiary, and, and the Zeppelin is nothing except a, a bag of flammable gas. So, really, they were quite vulnerable to that sort of counter-attack and they didn't have a huge effect but they basically came back once they had a longer range bomber the the Goethe bomber and tried again towards the end of the war and that was a little bit more effective but by that time we were already developing night fighters so we were sending up air force planes first world war yeah 
sending up air force planes to intercept their bombers even at night time and turn them back and uh, and so that campaign really wasn't that effective i think in total about 1200 londoners were killed in the first war i've got knowledge of the first world war to do with hydrophones and underwater technology and stuff like that i've got no idea what sort of tech we had to spot incoming Goethe's. Yeah. Did we, what did we have? What didn't we have? Well, it was primarily still done by the eye. I mean, we certainly this predates radar and things like that by a long way. Um, so night spotting was quite difficult. Um, one of the really iconic images of the Second World War, though, of course, is the crisscross beams of spotlights looking for bombers coming in. And that is something that we developed in the First War. So there's a really interesting poster from 1917 encouraging people to buy war bonds to give money to the nation to fight the war. And in one of these posters, you can quite clearly see beams of spotlights catching a a Goethe bomber over the silhouette of St. Paul's. A very iconic Second World War image, most would probably think. Mm. I've heard some very... If you can use funny in this context, then I'm going to use it. Stories about the ineptitude of the balloons as they tried to get to London and failed quite often. Yes, I mean, at the end of the day, it was a very difficult piece of technology to use. It was very difficult to steer... They were heading primarily towards the headwinds. Most of the prevailing wind in this part of the world heads from the west to the east. So they were heading into wind, which made steering very difficult. It made getting enough fuel to actually get to your targets very difficult. And, of course, London already uh, started blacking out and things. So finding your target without any kind of precision guidance technology was extremely difficult. And, of course, it was an incredibly dangerous thing. So although they had a, a large number of, you know, very qualified and capable captains uh, towards the war and even in the middle of the war as the war dragged on increasingly they were becoming more and more inexperienced Uh, where did they get their captains from because presumably if this is a new art you've suddenly got to find a a fleet's worth of captains from nowhere well yeah i mean and a lot of a lot of aerial skill and uh, and technique is invented on the hop during the war um the germans had already been developing airship technology uh, even as early as the 1890s so they were building that skill up in the years before the war there's a really interesting uh, point to be made about the geneva conventions or those sort of international rules of war and uh, hague conventions and things and they'd been updated in the 1890s to take account of some of the things that were anticipated about modern war and one of the things that um, a lot of international countries agreed to was banning bombing cities from the air by balloon in fact britain signed up to that and germany did so it was something they were probably already anticipating doing 15 years before the war at least. Uh, listener, if you'd like a diverting afternoon, it always reminds me actually of the chaos that was the Crusades. These Zeppelin runs, each successive wave of Zeppelin attacks even more disastrous than the last. So some of them blew off up the North Sea and half of them crashed for no good reason. And some were shot down, in fact. Right, yes. What was our success rate there? Middling, middling success. <laughs> um, they're very, very difficult to shoot down. The thing is that it uses a sort of a cellular thing. So unless you can sort of start a, a fire and get it to spread inside the uh, airship, just hit it isn't necessarily going to be enough to knock it out of the air. I'm presuming there's nothing I'm missing in terms of aerial bombing between the wars. Well, um, not so much in terms of uh, direct relation to Britain, but actually the Italians use bombing quite effectively and very sophisticatedly in a lot of their colonial campaigns, places like uh, Libya and Ethiopia and Abyssinia and places like that. And a lot of the technique of strategic bombing in cities by aircraft, heavier-than-air aircraft, a lot of that the Italians have started to uh, develop in the 1920s. And, of course, in the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s, the Germans really learned their craft there. They do some quite devastating bombing in Spain as well. So is it the case, then, that as the Second World War broke out, the Germans were well ahead of the game? They, they'd certainly had a, a little bit more practice, shall we say, than we had... I think one of the really interesting things about it is that most of the bombing, most of the Air Force theorists, if you will, really thought the value in aerial support was in in military purpose, in attacking targets on the ground. You know, there was this school of thought about strategic bombing against civilian populations and against industry and what have you, Um, but a lot of military theorists really actually thought that it should be confined to attacking targets in support of, say, for example, ground movement or or supporting the submarine raids in the Atlantic or what have you. Um, And there was a big moral dilemma. A lot of people did have a, a bit of an issue with the idea of bombing civilian populations already. How long did that moral quandary last? How quickly was it overcome? Well, I think um, from our perspective, the moral 
quandary is overcome when we start getting bombed. You know, the, the Blitz campaign, probably the London Blitz is the most famous, but actually dozens of British cities are, are struck and people's opinions change about retaliation very quickly after they've been bombed. So should we talk about that? Maybe we could lead up to that. Maybe we could get the Second World War started and, and then from London's point of view think about what the first inkling was that we were going to be yeah, copying it from above. Yeah, well, to give a bit of context, I guess, Hitler was really quite reluctant for the most part to actually have to fight against Britain uh, I don't think, you know, the, the historians argue about this but I don't think he really wanted to go to war with Britain in, at all but we'd had this uh, sort of diplomatic approach towards maintaining balance of power in Europe and protecting the minor states especially those states that were created after the First World War we wanted to maintain a stable order of peace in Europe and it was seen that giving that liberation, that freedom to new countries like Czechoslovakia and Poland and, and uh, places like that we really had to back that up by supporting them diplomatically and if, if necessary militarily as well so of course when the Nazis started their campaign of aggression when they invaded Poland we went to war there was that long period the phony war where not really very much happened but then of course once France was attacked we kicked off in earnest the, uh, the war in France and then the Dunkirk evacuation and what have you. And once the evacuation had occurred, we got ourselves into a position where it was actually very difficult for us to take the war to Germany. And the Germans really had the upper hand, so they were threatening Britain and Britain's mainland. And even though a lot of people in the German hierarchy weren't entirely convinced about actually attacking Britain, invading Britain, um, it was seen that they had to knock Britain out of the war to, to make their... They're, uh, we're just having planes going directly overhead at the moment, <laughs> helicopters rather. Um, Their real objectives in the east, that Laban's round, the notion of creating living room for the German people to expand into Eastern Europe, couldn't be achieved whilst they were still at war with Britain. So really the, the blitz, the attack against Britain is designed to try and undermine British morale and hopefully get them to surrender and pull out of the war. So, OK, so until... Dunkirk and that withdrawal, really we hadn't been touched by German air power. No, that all comes later, really. Um, it's towards the end of the summer, in fact. 7th of September 1940, the first bombing of London occurs, and it actually marks a very long period of almost nine months of continuous bombing, about 76 days, um, 71 days London's bombed for, and 57 consecutive days, every single night for 57 days, best part of, uh, of two months straight. 40,000 tonnes of explosives dropped on London. No, I've no idea. I've heard those figures before, but I've no idea really what that means. Is there a way of contextualising that? It's considerable amounts. I mean... <laughs> well, I assumed that much. <laughs> for example, in the first war, it's about 3,000 tonnes of explosives. In the second war, about 40,000 40, tonnes just on London. To contextualise, it's quite difficult, but essentially a car is about a tonne. So we're talking about 40,000 cars worth of weight of explosive being dropped on the capital. Right. Well, actually, funnily enough, they did have 1,000 kilo bombs. That was the largest bomb the Germans had. They varied everything. The majority of them were sort of 500 kilo bombs or less. One of the most devastating was actually their incendiary bomb. And the incendiary bomb was only about 50 kilos. It was quite small, it, it, probably liftable by most men. Um, but its real damage, of course, was in the fact that it burned an intensely hot magnesium fire which could trigger flammable materials and, and uh, start fires which would spread and actually a lot of the damage is caused by, by fire rather than blast or explosion. We know, of course, that the Battle of Britain was raging pretty much contemporaneously. Were, were they exact overlaps? Was one a result of the other? Well, the Battle of Britain really kicks off the protection of the island. You know, the bombing attacks start and the island needs to be defended. Um, and the only way that we can actually effectively do that is by the air. So the, the Royal Air Force really is the last line of defence. There's a couple of different elements. Basically, what we're trying to achieve is shoot down their bombers before they can bomb our cities. But they, of course, send up their own fire fighters to protect their bombers and make sure that they get through. So the Air Force is therefore also tasked with trying to shoot down their bombers and also protect themselves against uh, German uh, fighters at the same time. So they've got a double-handed fight, really, um, and that makes their task all the more harder. And if you've ever flown into City Airport, you realise just how close London is to the continent. 
Well, absolutely. You know, especially in the jet age, it's only a couple of hours away. They, they obviously took a little bit longer to get here. Um, but really, uh, you, you know, you could see Air Force fighters being able to, or bombers especially, being able to carry out multiple sorties in a day. Although really, because of our air defence and our development of radar and what have you, um, they're sort of confined to having to attack at night more than anything. So as this gets underway, and the, as you say, the objective is to freak us out... Well, the same question as in the previous war, really. How freaked out were we? Probably more than what we let on. Um, You know, British propaganda was an art form. We were probably one of the best nations at that in terms of visual art, graphic design, um, poster art, um, the moving picture and the the radio now were becoming key tools. The, uh, The government had absolutely perfected morale for ourselves and undermining enemy morale and things like that and of course world service broadcasts overseas helped bolster opinion in the in the continent and keep morale up for resistance forces but here in london we liked to uh, promote the idea that we can take it londoners can take it but really londoners morale was taking a heavy hit um, we suffered 40,000 deaths and some 140,000 further casualties during that attack. That's quite staggering numbers. Um, really, that was alleviated probably twofold. The evacuations were very effective, particularly for children, although some people refused to go, adults primarily, um, and the fact that we had this fantastic underground system which did provide shelter. There were further um, bomb shelters built and what have you as well, um, but a large number of Londoners were able to shelter in the uh, the tube system and that, that saved a lot of lives. Um, but so so the, the blitz spirit that we hear so much about... Was that a manufactured idea at the time and we were being told that we had the Blitz spirit, but actually perhaps maybe not so much? No, I think it's fair to say that, you know, the Blitz spirit was a thing that the Londoners had. There certainly was a little bit of, we're not going to allow you to attack our homes and and just stand by and do nothing. Londoners came together. A lot of communities worked together. You know, if someone was put out of their home, people would look after them. They'd uh, gather clothes, share clothes and food and things like that. People grew vegetable gardens and shared resources and that sort of stuff so it was real but the government played up on that and made it feel stronger and when it wavered they were there to to try and give a little bit more of a a hey-ho bolster support and that sort of thing Um, but it's also worth bearing in mind the blitz spirit does also paint over a few of the nastier sides of things that were going on you know looting was a real problem people's homes being robbed when they'd been evacuated or or bombed out Um, crime did occur it was a real problem and there were issues like that and of course there was also problems with uh, the large number of casualties what to do with the casualties uh, how to keep the city running transport being cut or broken water supply being cut or broken these sort of things so life in London during the blitz wasn't wasn't a nice thing at all even despite the fact that that blitz spirit was still there I don't know if this is outside your area, but I've often wondered when, when you see the pictures of all the people huddled together in the tube, sheltering from the next night of the Blitz, do you know if the tubes were operating in any fashion and how did they mix those two uses for the tube stations? Well, we did try and keep transport running as best as possible. Um, some of the tube stations were directly bombed and taken out. Believe it or not, a bomb actually went down the stairwell in a tube station and exploded in the platform and that caused uh, devastating loss of life. We have to remember that uh, the transport systems, they did try and keep them running. The men and women of London that uh, worked really hard um, to ensure that buses kept going. And and women in particular did do a lot of jobs like driving buses and and things like that. Um, But of course, when the uh, tube stations were being used as bomb shelters, um, obviously they were overcrowded. They had to um, sometimes shut them down. We know as well that some of the tube stations had other uses as well, but we're not talking so much about the tube here. And We're above ground, we're outside the Tate Britain, and the wall we're looking at here is, well, severely damaged. It's pockmarked, we're being very generous. What's the story here? Yeah, so we came down here deliberately because, as we said earlier on in the broadcast, the visible legacy, the evidence of the bombing, is visible all over London both in public buildings and a lot of private homes. You see a lot of redone brickwork in houses, terrace houses, all over the city. There are new buildings in places between historic buildings, and if you stop and think for a moment why that might be, well, quite often the answer is that the building in between have been destroyed, and so 
The older buildings either side have been left in place, but the one in the middle became a vacant lot to be redeveloped. This place in particular, the Tate, down on um, Millbank, is quite interesting. Some public buildings chose to redo their bomb damage, and in fact, if you look over the road at the University of the Arts, the Chelsea Art College, you can see where the damage is, but it's got lots of little patches where they've refilled in the, the stonework and repaired it. Well, the Tate haven't done that, and a lot of buildings, like the V&A, for example, also maintain the, the facades as they were damaged in the war. That damage, as you can see, it's a quite a, a variation in size of damage and shape of damage. Some of it's caused by what we would call splinter, and splinter are the big metal shards of the bomb casings themselves that oh, explode and break oh, apart. Oh, yeah. Now, hang on. I need, I need to be educated on this yeah. one because I know that everybody gets this wrong, right? This yeah. Because most people call that shrapnel. Shrapnel, yeah. But yeah. is uh, no. Shrapnel, indeed. Shrapnel is a specific type of weapon, primarily used by ground artillery, although you do get shrapnel for air attacks as well. But essentially what shrapnel is, is generally something like, and this is the most common form, something like lead ball bearings or balls that are contained within the explosive shell itself. And it's it's designed deliberately to cause maximum damage all around. When the shell explodes, the shrapnel balls are thrown out in a, a vast area and they travel at supersonic speed. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. It's primarily an anti-personnel weapon. They're very devastating against troops. So in the First World War, a large number of men in the, in the trenches, for example, were killed by shrapnel exploding above their heads and raining down on top of them. And that's why we developed the Brody helmet. The helmet's actually got no protection whatsoever against rifle fire, but it does deflect balls travelling at the, at the right angle. So it gives you a little bit of protection against uh, shrapnel balls. But yeah, big difference uh, hence, between that. Hence the wide brim. Yes, indeed. Big difference between shrapnel and fragmentation or splinter. Fragmentation is essentially when the shell casing itself breaks apart, it fragments. So it's fragmentation. And the pieces that come off, we would call splinter. So a lot of the damage to these buildings and a lot of the buildings that were destroyed in the Blitz, uh, you get multiple effects. The blast itself, the air pressure of the blast, is one of the most devastating things. So when the explosion occurs, the blast of the air coming out actually forces uh, buildings apart, just rips them apart through the blast itself. Then you get that fragmentation, the splinter being thrown in dozens of different uh, directions, broken red-hot pieces of metal spinning and flying through the air at supersonic speed. Obviously, anything that hits, it's going to cause damage. These sorts of buildings, though, are made classic big Victorian sandstone edifices. They're, They're great big constructions and fairly capable of taking that sort of damage. So where you see those big chunks that have broken out of the wall and been pulled off the wall, that's primarily probably going to be caused by fragmentation, splinter damage. What you'll also see, you'll see smaller, rounder holes. Quite a lot of that's actually the machine gun fire from the fighters engaging in aerial combat directly above us. Uh, Oh, okay, that's interesting. So it's possible that you could be minding your own business on the street and shot by a plane that wasn't aiming for you. If you were on the street while the aerial combat was going on above you, you'd have been in a pretty bad situation. But you'd have also been being a bit naughty because you would have, of course, been given an air raid warning and been told to go to shelter. So the wardens would have been uh, trying to get you out of harm's way. But really, where we're standing here on the Millbank, not very far from Westminster and also Buckingham Palace, aerial combat occurred directly above our heads here. There were fighters fighting for supremacy of the air directly above where we're standing. 
Uh, So we must have had downed aircraft landing in the streets and all that jazz. Absolutely, and in fact there's a fantastic story from not very far from here. You know, we're quite close to Pimlico. Well, one of the air raids, a a German bomber, was travelling up the length of the river over the Tower Bridge and was planning on bombing, or we think he was planning on bombing Buckingham Palace itself. And uh, obviously the, the, um, the hurricanes and the spitfires that were trying to take those bombers out tried to take him down, and he was damaged and was uh, going to crash. He was basically unable to return back to Germany, and he knew it, so he decided to crash his plane into Buckingham Palace and flew straight towards the front of the palace, flying down the mall. And a very brave Spitfire pilot flew alongside him, brought his wing up underneath the wing of the fighter and flipped the bomber, twisting it away from his course, and it crash-landed not very far from us here in Pimlico. Daring, that, daring that, do indeed. Is that true? It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. I can send you a picture. <laughs> you, a picture? Because you hear a lot of tall tales, don't you? And I, well, there I, are, yeah. I think um, I've heard that a lot of uh, Battle of Britain pilots would have shot down at least 50 on their most recent <laughs> sortie. Well, you know, they were called the few for a reason. Even though a lot of them were inexperienced pilots, at the end of the day, the Battle of Britain and, and the success that the pilots achieved was absolutely fundamental in keeping us in the war and, and protecting London. Um, so, yeah, sure, there's lots of uh, barroom stories and things that, you know, great listening after a drink and at, at the end of the night or what have you, um, but actually quite a lot of it's true as well. There's some remarkable endeavours. Just with the political atmosphere being what it is, and uh, having walked past on my way here from Pimlico, what I think might have been a Polish embassy, I'm not sure, but there seemed to be a lot of people applying for visas there, and I I heard Polish language being spoken. Poles played a really important part in this whole scene, didn't they? Absolutely, they did. The Poles, crucial allies right from the beginning. Of course, we entered the war to protect Poland, um, and a large number of Polish soldiers, airmen and sailors, all managed to escape from Poland before they were conquered by the Nazis or even during the, the conquest and made their way to France and then Britain. And um, we ended up having a Polish brigade in the, uh, in the armed forces. They fought with us very bravely alongside British forces and Commonwealth forces in North Africa and then in Northwest Europe. Um, you know, famous campaigns like the Bridge at Arnhem, the Polish brigade were there, and the Polish uh, Air Force as well. We had a, a large number of Polish servicemen. In fact, in the Battle of Britain alone, there were actually 32 different nations represented the commonwealth of course australia new zealand canada bermudans uh, all parts of the commonwealth really but french pilots czech pilots poles you name it i'm reading a book at the moment actually but a uh, an american chap who decided he was going to sign up and help the fight in europe before america declared actually before pearl harbor and in order to swear allegiance to the king he had to renounce his American citizenship and uh, that that caused huge heartache but he was here I think serving with a Canadian squadron Yeah, that kind of makes you feel like this would have been the first time when the front was above us well for for London that's definitely true as we touched on before um, strategic bombing had sort of occurred in the first war and, and obviously the bombing of London but if you want to talk about the front i.e. where you know the enemy sort of face each other I, I suppose there's a sort of a semantics involved about whether it's actual infantry facing each other within a, you know visible sight of each other or what have you but I suppose there is definitely an argument to be made that this was the front line you know those, those pilots in the Battle of Britain were facing the enemy over London. So we know about people hiding which seems like a very sensible move. Uh, you have to wonder, actually, if this whole thing were going on today, whether people wouldn't be too busy looking at their iPhones to notice it was going on. <laughs> but we've got people hiding, we've got people driving ambulances. What else was going on? Maybe we could have a bit of detail about how ordinary folk were pitching in in the fight against the Luftwaffe. Well, first of all, one of the most important things that uh, a lot of people did and, and had to do was just carry on with their normal jobs, actually. You know, the economy had to keep going. We were absolutely a military industrial economy and you can't fight a war without um, economic growth economic prosperity and of course the entire economy gets geared towards supporting that war effort so industry in particular agriculture all of those things are absolutely vital so anyone who wasn't drawn into the forces or or women's services or or those sorts of supporting elements of the forces had to carry on with their work But, of course, you also get significant contributions from civilian forces. A large number of people are are wardens, fire wardens, and also civil security sort of wardens, you know, keeping people safe at night, 
no street lights during blackouts, so making sure people can get home, that sort of thing. Uh, so these are ARP wardens? Yeah, that sort of thing, exactly. Uh, the fire brigade itself, of course, alongside the fire wardens, incredible work uh, preventing those fires that were being spread by incendiaries, people doing voluntary work in uh, other areas like medical services and those sorts of things. Really, uh, a lot of people contributing in whatever way they could. And I know we sent a lot of our old folk up towers to spot planes coming in and to throw buckets of water over the incendiary bombs. Uh, This is a very specific and weird question, possibly. How do we use kids in the war? Well, um, more than you might think, actually. One of the key things, you know, the scouts in particular are sort of mobilised, if that's the right word, especially things like runners, running messages and those sorts of jobs, getting supplies through, getting messages, those sorts of things. But really the vast majority of London's kids were evacuated away from danger. Oh, of course they were, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. But, of course, you mentioned the, the older folk, the older generation. They did do those sorts of things. But, of course, one of the key areas older men in particular did was um, volunteering for the home guard so uh, we were really worried particularly uh, in 1940 about the risk of invasion itself you know our army had just taken a bit of a battering at Dunkirk and was a bit battered and, and needed reorganization and reforming and the risk of invasion was actually real so especially first world war vets but a lot of older generation volunteered to do local security work police type work guarding important institutions public buildings that sort of work and actually also units were formed for home defense as well should, should we do the iconic image thing the St Paul's cathedral thing yeah why if, not? I, if i if i just press that button i feel completely certain that there is something to talk about there <laughs> St Paul's well i mentioned in the first war you know that iconic image of the the smoldering city in the background the, the silhouette of St Paul's illuminated um, searchlights crisscrossing the sky and for the second war in particular that is probably the defining image of the blitz I imagine but it, it is also a remarkable story St Paul's has the connection to the story of London's destruction in that it was built after the fire the great fire of 1666 which incidentally also started at the beginning of September that fire destroyed most of the area the old St Paul's Cathedral was destroyed and the new St Paul's not to sound too um, verbose or too much hyperbole but that, that really is rising from the ashes of the Great Fire of London and then to see that cathedral standing firm with fire burning all around it but it being more or less untouched is one of the defining stories of the war although saying untouched is probably a, a bit of a mistruth because of course it was bombed considerably it was set on fire several times and you talked about people being sent up towers well people scrambled all over the roof putting those fires out including picking up incendiary devices to put them into sand buckets to prevent the roof catching fire extraordinary heroism to save that icon of the city and it is an icon of course don't forget before a lot of our post-war towers and and uh, you know the temples of commerce the big skyscrapers went up St Paul's was pretty much the biggest city the biggest uh, building in the city an icon of the city could be seen from most parts of the city so in many ways you could talk about it as a figurative heart of the city have you heard this i don't know if this is true or not but i was reading about the blitz from a fire watcher's perspective and they were saying that it was as though wren had designed the cathedral specifically to deflect incendiary bombs there's something about the way the the domed roof is built inside so that there are compartments and it stops the fire from spreading or something have you heard about this i have it would have been remarkable insight for him to have anticipated that of course but <laughs> but uh, so no i don't think he did but 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 by uh, happenstance of design it was actually quite effective for that you know the um the uh, incendiaries in particular slid down the angled roof. Um, they trapped in gutters, which meant that the fire wardens on the roof were able to reach them more safely and could move around on the roof. Um, whether he intended it to prevent fire, well, he had just seen the biggest fire probably in Europe's history occur around him um, when he was thinking of designing that building, so maybe it did occur to him. In the midst of the Blitz, what job, whether ground-based or aerial, wouldn't you have wanted (laughs) what a question um no one really was without danger including civilians we mentioned before you know bombs making their way into underground stations (sighs) what job wouldn't you have wanted Really, anything above ground during the bombing is is taking your life in your hands. All of those wardens, the firemen, police, anyone who was above ground, um, extraordinary heroism, anti-aircraft gunners, you know, all of those jobs... Mm. They were putting their lives on the line, literally, to keep this city, keep the people of this city safe. 
but also to keep the city safe, to try and protect the city. And they were fighting for the very fabric of the city as well as the, the Londoners, uh, you know, the people of London as well. Uh, you know what we haven't talked about yet, which is weird, uh, rockets. It's strange, when you drive down through France, there's at least one site, the, the name of which escapes me right now. Um, but as you'll know if you've driven through France, every town has a big brown tourism sign outside it with a picture of what the town is famous for. So a big overflowing cornucopia of fruit if it's, uh, if it's that sort of town, some people dancing if there's a festival there regularly. And there's one town which clearly shows rockets and planes being launched with the idea i think that this is where a lot of the stuff was chucked over the channel towards us yeah absolutely so of course the blitz the the early phase that period we talked about september 40 through to may of 41 was primarily heavier than air aircraft dropping bombs from the aircraft but they have another late show towards the end of the war the germans are investing quite heavily into their rocket technology the v1 and then the v2 programs um, and they are extraordinarily effective were it not for the fact that we were bombing their major cities, their industrial uh, heartlands, and also once the uh, Northwest campaign had kicked off, we had men on the ground literally trying to track down and find rocket launching sites and take them out, and they did extraordinary work doing that sort of thing. But the German rocket technology was quite advanced, and in fact, it's the very same technology that ends up leading to the American and Russian space programs in the post-war period. So we're not messing about. These aren't sort of firecrackers or or uh, fun and games type rockets. These are serious weapons and they basically are the forerunners of intercontinental ballistic missiles as well and they do cause devastation extremely difficult to shoot down most of our fighters for example are still propeller driven even though the uh, the later models of the spitfire and things start becoming incredibly fast powerful machines these are rockets traveling at uh, incredibly high speed and they're difficult to knock out of the air and so towards the latter stages of the war the rocket campaign again causes significant casualties in the city and significant fabric damage as well how did those two phases interact with each other we've got the bombers coming over wave after wave why did that stop they're broken actually they're not directly linked and the reason is you know Hitler, I guess, or certainly perhaps his commanders, didn't really anticipate that Britain would hold out. They, they genuinely undertook those blitzes of cities like London and Liverpool and Coventry, Birmingham, etc., all of those cities, and smaller towns as well, with the notion that eventually Britain would put its hands up and say, we can't take this, we give up, we surrender, carry on with your war on the continent, we'll go back to minding our own business. And of course that didn't happen. So after months and months and months of pumping resource into this and it having no real discernible effect, they decided to withdraw from that program. And also the other key factor and and probably the motivating factor for it is that in the uh, winter and the spring of 1941, Hitler's really gearing up for Operation Barbarossa, the big invasion of the Soviet Union. You know, he stabs the Russians in the back, decides to invade. That's his real aim. They're after that Lebensraum, the, the living room in Eastern Europe. He wants to be able to expand the German people in that direction, conquer Poland, Ukraine, Russia, and turn it into the German fatherland, the German new territories. And he needs every resource available to do that. So the Blitz is just draining resource to no effect. So that's why it stops. There's plenty of dramatic representations of what it looked like to be in the Blitz. Have you got any sense of what it was like when the Blitz stopped? Did people realise that it had stopped? Was there any confidence in it staying stopped? I don't think initially that was the case. I think because even though there'd been that big, long, heavy chunk, there had also been nights without bombing. And so I suppose in the first weeks or so they sort of thought maybe it's just a a ruse or something get us back out on the streets or something like that Uh, but but most Londoners as we'd said had been carrying on anyway so as soon as the last bomb of the evening fell they were back out of their funk holes and back to work and doing what they had to do so really it was sort of carry on literally you know we see those posters but it was carry on when that had gone on for a while I think people had sort of thought that was the end of it. Should we talk specifically about some of the damage that's caused, whether by a rocket or by aerial bombardment or whatever? Um, Obviously, we've addressed the place that we're right next to, but what about more broadly? What are some notable examples that people might be walking past every day? 
Well, um, there is bomb damage all over the place. We mentioned the First World War briefly. You know, you can still even see First World War damage, for example. Um, Cleopatra's Needle, that famous Egyptian obelisk on the um, embankment, um, that has quite visible bomb damage from the First World War. A large number of buildings, including the Tates, I mentioned the V&A, you know, bomb damage from the First World War is visible all over. St Clement Danes in the, uh, in the city, on the Strand, large number of churches. Of course, there are also bombed-out sites that haven't been rebuilt. Then there's the less obvious. You know, you'll see, for example, a row of terrace houses, and they'll look ordinary. You probably walk past them every day on your way to the tube or your way to work and don't notice anything about it. But if you look up, particularly towards the top of those sort of houses, quite often you'll see an irregular pattern in the brickwork or a slightly different colour of brick. That's almost certainly probably going to be rebuilt after the war where the roof has been ripped off and the uh, rest of the house has been intact. So they've been able to just put the roof back on. Those sorts of things, really. Yeah, your, your, your best uh, bet there from what I've seen is the end of terrace. That's where you want to be looking. Absolutely. And what's interesting is you'll quite often get a clear indicator is the one at the end of the terrace might be quite heavily damaged and then there'll be a decreasing pattern of damage as you go along as literally the brickwork has been blasted out of the end and kind of dragged a section of brick out of the neighbouring houses getting increasingly smaller as the strength of the blast has pulled away. And you can see little patterns like that. Or you can see, for example, one in the middle of a row where there's a big chunk or an entire house that's been destroyed and the ones either side have decreasing patterns of damage you'll also see things like i mentioned before say for example a car park in a random spot in the middle of a row of terraces or near some office blocks and you think why is there a car park there well it's because the building was bombed it was probably left as a site of rubble for many years and eventually cleared and turned into a car park because no one redeveloped it or the landowners didn't have money to redevelop it Um, i remember when i first moved here i worked briefly at the imperial war museum for a couple of years and one of my colleagues there he'd been working there for some 30 years so he'd started in the 70s and he said walking through south london on the way to work at lambeth he regularly remembers going past big piles of rubble that were still there in situ 30 years after the end of the war so the bomb damage the visible bomb damage was much more obvious then than it is now but it is still there you know, you'll also see, I mentioned before, there'll be historical buildings and then a new building in the middle. That's almost certainly going to have been a bomb site. And then there's the less obvious but more discernible in some ways, things like the Barbican area. Well, that's all 1960s rebuild, brand new sort of modernist or brutalist styles of architecture, and that's because that entire area was destroyed. So instead of just repairing one building, they've just decided to start again from scratch and build an estate or build a new complex or an office building and place of houses that used to be there oh so we have hitler to thank for brutalism (laughs) yes that suddenly makes sense yeah well and quite a lot of the estates it's it's funny when you look at big housing estates sometimes they seem like they're in strange places rows of terraces and then an estate on the end well if enough houses were destroyed they replaced it with you know post-war estate buildings and things like that but um, yes, brutalism does uh, does rise out of the ashes of the Second World War in London, and of course uh, they were planning on redesigning Berlin from the ground up in a in a kind of brutalist, post Art Deco, neo modernist sort of style, a brand new Berlin, a new Germania sort of thing, which I guess was brutalist architecture really. Yeah, that sounds like Speer to me. Yeah, indeed. Uh, you you said there was one uh, one other thing. Oh yeah, I was just going to say, we quite often see rebuilt or a car park on a vacant lot, but there are actually also places where there used to be rows of houses, people's lives, people's terraces, whole communities where there hasn't been anything rebuilt and instead there'll be a park or a playground. And um, it's quite interesting to sort of see in some places they've decided just to leave it and not rebuild instead. And I was, I've been thinking how one goes about finishing such a weighty subject, as you've much more experience of finishing the subject than I have. <laughs> what's, what's the tie-off? Well, I guess the one thing that I would say to Londoners listening really is, you know, it's really easy for us, or perhaps it's not because it's easy, it's just because we're so busy. You know, we, we live in a global capital, it's a big industrial commercial centre, we're at the heart of commerce and finance and things like that. And there's a lot of pressure, there's a lot of stress. We're always leading busy lives and rushing around, quite often with our heads down in our phones. So I guess the one thing I would say is, you know, occasionally stop and draw breath and look up and look around you. And you'll see history, not just this history, but 
the entire 2,000 years of London history is actually still visible all around us. Um, but a lot of the things about how we live our lives and the way the city's designed, the fabric of the city, um, you can really still see those horrible months in the middle of the Second World War when this city was under attack and, as you said before, the front line of the war really was here in London. You can still see that all around us. Uh, listener, if you are using the Acast platform to listen to this show, then I hope what we've been able to do as we've been talking is throw up some images of some of that kind of history. Uh, so fill your boots there. If you want to check out Robert Fleming further, though, you can do so on YouTube. And, and where else can people pick up what you're doing? Well, the other thing I would say, of course, is even though the main site at Chelsea is still closed for renovation, the National Army Museum, just off Sloan Square, Sloan Square is our nearest tube. We're next to the Royal Hospital in Chelsea, right near the river. We're reopening early next year, hopefully around March, if everything goes to plan, which I'm sure it will. And got to come down and check out our new galleries. Uh, it really is a fantastic world-class museum. The changes that we've made are extraordinary. We've improved access for uh, mobility users and things like that. Brand new cafe. It's a fantastic part of London. Oh, and really to link to our story, the reason the National Army Museum is where it is is because the building that used to be there was bombed in the war as well. Um, so we've got a, a brutalist building, which perhaps is thanks to the Germans, but it's now absolutely a fantastic up-to-date modern building, great museum, great collection, and some really interesting stories and questions for you to be asked there. Just, just close your eyes until you're inside. <laughs> the outside now, we've fixed all of the brutalism. It's a lovely, beautiful modern facade. <laughs> Uh, I can't endorse that enough and and, uh, as I said we recorded there before and it was fantastic then so it's only going to be uh, a delight now thanks for taking the time Robert Fleming thanks very much my pleasure thank you for having me and that's all for this week my thanks for this week to Robert Fleming thanks too to Eloise Maxwell and Bernie Barkley theme and incidental music was by Sons from the Howling Sea I'm Anne Quentin Wolfe i